Welcome to Creation, Teaching Truth with Confidence, a biblical training program for teens and above. Now let's join Mike as he teaches about how to respond to biblical arguments used to support millions of years. Hello, I'm your instructor, Mike Riddle, and we're in lesson four of our subject, Responding to Biblical Arguments Used to Support Millions of Years. Now, our topic for this lesson will be the framework hypothesis, which teaches Genesis is not meant to be taken as literal history. Our objectives for this session will be state a characteristic of Hebrew poetry, state three common characteristics of theistic evolution, state why the framework hypothesis fails as a valid interpretation of Scripture, and four, give three Bible references that state God created everything in six literal days. So our challenge is the framework hypothesis, where it states, Genesis is a framework and not meant to be real history. In other words, God created everything, but it doesn't say how he did it or when he did it. And then Genesis is poetic and not narrative style writing. So how does the framework hypothesis fit in with all these other views we've heard about creation? Let's start with what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches God created everything in six literal days about 6,000 years ago. Then we have all these opposing views such as the day-age theory, the gap theory, progressive creationism, God used evolution, and the one we're studying now, the framework hypotheses. People are developing new ideas of how to interpret God's words, especially the first three chapters of Genesis. In every case, these new ideas undermine the foundation of the gospel, and which starts in the first chapters of Genesis. They all oppose the plain reading of Scripture. The interesting thing about all these different views is they all disagree with each other also. But they all have three things in common. One, they all elevate science as their standard over Scripture. Secondly, they all fail the test of biblical consistency. And third, all take God's Word out of context to support their personal interpretation. What they're doing is no different than what happened in Genesis, where the serpent, that Satan said this, Has God indeed said, or paraphrasing that, that's not what God really meant. Let me tell you what he said. I've got the degrees. Now, so let's look at the framework hypothesis. When did it start? Well, the framework hypothesis was introduced in 1924. It was a new method for adding millions of years into Scripture. It was an attempt to reclassify the genre or the style of writing of Genesis 1 as being something other than historical narrative. And it is currently one of the more popular views being taught in our seminaries. Many in church have heard about the framework hypothesis, but few have heard its details, and fewer, including our church leaders, have studied its claims. Whatever happened to 2 Timothy 2.15, where it teaches, we're to study and show ourselves approved and rightly handle God's word. Whatever happened about the Bereans in Acts 17, when they heard something new, they went back to Scripture to see if what they heard was true. In other words, they set Scripture as their authority. What does all this say about our hiring practices in our Christian seminaries? Well, it appears putting Scripture as the authority is not all that important in our Christian education institutions. They give our professors the freedom to teach whatever view they want, regardless of what it says and regardless of what the Bible clearly teaches. Now, two claims about the framework hypothesis. One, it's poetry. Genesis chapter 1 is poetry versus narrative history. 
Instead of six days of creation, they break them up into two triads of days. In other words, days one through three are parallel with days four through six. In other words, they're not sequential. The issue deals with hermeneutics, the rules for interpreting Scripture, such as context. Don't take God's word out of context. Explicit. The ex- if something is explicitly stated, it has a higher priority than what you might imply it means. What is the purpose of communications? And then genre the style of literature it is written in. So we're going to have to examine something here. The Hebrew narrative style of writing versus Hebrew poetry. So our challenge is, the framework hypothesis starts with the view that the days of creation in Genesis 1 are symbolic expressions or poetic that have nothing to do with time. So let's put this into a simple diagram to examine what the framework proponents are teaching. Now this diagram you're looking at shows an arrow representing the book of Genesis. The blue is in chapter 1 and the green is the rest of Genesis. The framework hypothesis is essentially an attempt to reclassify the genre or style of language in Genesis 1 as poetic and not historical narrative. Proponents have attempted to identify figurative language or semi-poetic devices in the text. In other words, what they're saying right there is, for 1900 years, nobody could find this until we, this current group, says, we think we found something poetic in there that you didn't see for 1900 years. Then, by doing this, they can show that the Bible's first chapter is not to be taken in its plain sense. And they make the claim that Genesis 1 simply reveals that God created everything, that he made man in his image, but it has nothing to say about how God created or time, meaning when he created. So let's subject the framework hypothesis to the Berean plus test. In Acts 17 again, the Bereans went back and searched the scriptures to see what they heard was true. And there are four components to the Berean plus test. One, the theological test. Two, the linguistics hermeneutic test. Three, the consistency logic test. And four, the empirical science test. We only deal with observable and repeatable science. So how well does the framework hypothesis stand up against the Brian plus test? So let's start with number one, the theologic test. The Bible, the plain reading of Genesis 1 is that God created everything in six little days. The framework hypothesis replaces a literal interpretation of the creation account with a non-literal view. Now, Meredith Klein, one of the leading proponents of the framework hypothesis, states this. To rebut the literalist interpretation of the Genesis creation week propounded by the young earth theorist is a central concern of this article. The conclusion is that as far as the time frame is concerned with respect to both the duration and sequence of events, the scientist is left free of biblical constraints in hypothesizing about cosmic origins. Well, let's analyze this quote here. This quote had a lot of information in it. Let's take it apart. One, the intent of the framework hypothesis is to rebut the literalist interpretation of the Genesis creation week. In other words, don't worry about what the Bible said. Listen to us. We know better. We know more than what God told you. Second, to be free of biblical constraints. Did you hear what they said in there? to be free of biblical constraints. In other words, again, don't worry about the Bible. It doesn't mean what it really says. And third, get this now, this is important, give scientists the freedom to interpret the age of the earth. In other words, don't trust what God said. We know better. And what he's saying here is, 
Don't worry about your theological degrees. The scientists know better of how to interpret Scripture than you do. So let's look at some theological problems with the framework hypothesis. Number one, it elevates man's knowledge or wisdom of science above Scripture. Secondly, it promotes death before sin. Anytime you add millions of years into Genesis, it always leaves room for death before sin. But Romans 5, 12, 1 Corinthians 15 teach death came through one man. In other words, the framework hypothesis says those scriptures aren't exactly right. And then what about Genesis 1.31? Once you add millions of years in there, what was happening for those millions of years? Death, decay, disease, and struggle, because that's what the fossil record is. It's a record of dead things. And God, in Genesis 1.31, would have called all that very good. That changes the character of God. It changes the whole foundation of the gospel when you put death before sin. And then finally in Mark 10, verse 6, it changes the meaning of the very words of Jesus Christ. In Mark 10, verse 6, Jesus makes this statement. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. What Jesus is saying here is man and woman were on this planet from the beginning of creation, not after these alleged millions of years. The framework hypothesis says Jesus was wrong here. The framework hypothesis teaches that the Bible does not tell us how God created. You know, if they would have just read the Bible, they would have found out the Bible does teach how God created everything. Let's take a look at some places here. Genesis 1. Over and over again we see, and God said. Over and over again, right there in Genesis 1, it teaches God spoke everything into existence. Then in Psalm 33, 6 and 9, and Hebrews 11, 3, it tells us how God created. For example, Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9 state, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Very clear there, folks. God spoke everything to existence by his great power. Then Hebrews 11, 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made out of things which are visible. Why can't the framework hypothesis proponents understand these scriptures? Simple. They've elevated their wisdom, their knowledge, above God's word. These verses plainly teach God spoke everything into existence by his great power. But the framework hypothesis denies that. So we look at the theology test. The framework hypothesis fails the theological test. They're literally rewriting or rejecting the plain reading of God's Word. So we'll put a stamp of failure there. Now let's go to the second test, the linguistic hermeneutic test. In other words, the framework hypothesis versus the rules of interpretation. Well, the framework hypothesis says Genesis 1 is poetry. So let's take, go back to the English language. Let's look at some English poetry, some characteristics of English poetry. English poetry is defined by pronounced sounds identifying the text as poetry. For example, English poetry routinely makes use of words that rhyme. Let's take a look at a short poem by John Gardner. The lizard is a timid thing that cannot dance or fly or sing. He hunts for bugs beneath the floor and longs to be a dinosaur. Notice the words thing and sing rhyme, and the words floor and dinosaur rhyme. So that's a characteristic of English poetry, rhyming words. 
Now let's look at Hebrew poetry. It's quite different. A common literary feature of Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament is called parallelism, in which the words of two or more lines of text are directly related in some way. But it's not rhyming. It's two or more sentences are related. So let's look at some examples of Hebrew poetry. One of the classic examples is Psalm 19.1, where it states, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Notice those two lines there? They both basically say the same thing, but use different words. Then we can go to Psalm 49, verse 1. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who live in this world. Again, the two lines say the same thing. This is an example of synonymous parallelism, where the same concept is related in different but equivalent words. Now let's look at Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, where it states, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's an example of antithetical parallelism, where a phrase or verse is contrasted or is the opposite of something else. The importance of understanding this is so that we can correctly interpret and understand God's Word. We must understand the difference between English poetry and what Hebrew poetry looks like. Now, what do we find in Genesis 1? This poetic structure, parallelism, is not found in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is written in historical narrative format. Douglas Kelly, who's got his doctorate in systematic theology, states this. In a word, Genesis 1 is not written according to the canons of Hebrew poetry with various types of parallelism. Walter Kaiser, professor of the Old Testament, states, While there may be some debate about the extent of the creation account's artistic nature, it is an incontrovertible fact that it is not poetic. James Johnson, who's got his law degree and also his doctorate and a professor of apologetics, states, The bottom line is that Genesis is not Hebrew poetry. Genesis is Hebrew narrative prose. In other words, Genesis is a record of accurate, true history, not mysticism, not mystery, not myth. Now, Robert McCabe, who's got his doctorate in Old Testament languages and literature, states, The use of sequentially numbered days in Scripture is regularly used to reference literal and distinct days. The scriptural use of numeric qualifiers with the singular day unequivocally testifies to the literal nature of each day in the creation narrative. Now let's go to Stephen Boyd, who has his doctorate in the Hebrew language. Now, in order to distinguish the genres or style of literature, Dr. Boyd did a quantitative statistical analysis of Hebrew finite verbs, which can help determine the genre of Hebrew text to a high degree of accuracy. And here's what he states. My findings in this step were that the probability that Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 is narrative is between 999942 and 0 .999987 at a 99.5% confidence level. I conclude, therefore, that it is statistically indefensible to argue that this text is poetry. Wow! This is an example of using 2 Timothy 2.15, studying to show ourselves approved, being able to rightly handle God's Word. Now let's go to Scott Newling. He's got his Ph.D. in Old Testament specialist, and he states this. 
Further and more important, when it comes to standard Hebrew poetic forms, especially parallelism, non-standard vocabulary, and unusual verb patterning, these are also absent from the text, with the exception of Genesis 1.27. As my old, ancient, Near East history lecturer once put it, anyone reading the text would fail a first-year Hebrew exam if they called Genesis 1 a type of Hebrew poetry. There are many scholars out there, and for over 1900 years, none of them saw Genesis as poetry. Then we can turn to the New Testament. The New Testament treats Genesis 1-11 through as historical narrative. At least 25 New Testament passages refer directly to the early chapters of Genesis, and they are always treated as real history. And we see this in Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10, Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and Luke chapter 17, all refer to Genesis as historical narrative. Now, Abner Chow, professor of biblical studies, states, They, Jesus and the New Testament authors, all viewed these events as historical, and they viewed Adam as an historical person. They knew the difference between truth and myth. The clarity of the Old Testament is confirmed by the New Testament itself. Now let's look at the word and, that conjunction. Each of the days of creation begins with the phrase, and God said. And is the conjunction va in the Hebrew language. Charles Taylor got his degrees in applied linguistics, so he understands something about language, makes this statement. Though the va consecutive in some contexts may allow for temporal recapitulation. Ooh, let's stop right there. There's some big words there. What does temporal mean? It has to do with time. But what about that word recapitulation? What does that mean? Well, recapitulation is a style of writing. What it means is you might start with something simple and then recap it or rephrase it or summarize it. So that's what recapitulation is. You write something, then you summarize or recap it. We see that in a lot of computer manuals where the first chapter deals with all the technology very simple. But starting in the second chapter, we drill down or summarize a part of what we wrote in chapter 1 and give more details. That's the style of recapitulation. Now, computer people did not invent this. God did. See, in Genesis chapter 1, it's a broad overview of all six days of creation. Then Genesis chapter 2 drills down into day 6 and talks about just the first family and gives more details. That's a style of writing called recapitulation. Now, let's go back to the quote. Though the Vaux consecutive in some contexts may allow for temporal recapitulation, its use as the mainline sequence advances the divine creative activities of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, and more specifically, this advancement in verses 14 and 15 excludes any interpretation that takes day 4 as an example of temporal recapitulation. In other words, day 4 is not a recap of anything for it. It is a distinct day. Gary Pratico, Ph.D. and professor of Old Testament and Hebrew language, says this, Voir consecutives are used primarily in narrative sequence to denote consecutive actions, that is, actions occurring in sequence, not parallel to each other. So when we look at the linguistic hermeneutic test, the framework hypothesis fails the linguistic hermeneutic test. Genesis chapter 1 is written in the Hebrew historical narrative format. So we can stamp that as 
failed. Let's go to our third test, the consistency logic test. The framework hypothesis is an attempt to do away with the little interpretation of Genesis 1 and allow for millions of years. This is done because they have been influenced by the secular world. This test checks to see if the framework hypothesis is consistent with other parts of Scripture. So let's go back to that word, and. And Robert McCabe, again, who's got his doctorate in Old Testament languages and literature, states this. What is germane to this argument is that the Vaughan consecutive appears 55 times in the 34 verses found in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. Thus, the use of the Vaughan consecutive in the prologue to the historical narrative of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is consistent with the narrative material found in the remainder of Genesis. What is that saying? Just this. Since Genesis 1 is written in the same style as the rest of Genesis, and the first chapter is not meant to be taken literally, does this mean the entire book of Genesis is not historical? In addition, when does the Bible become real history, and what are the rules? Lovers, folks, if Genesis chapter 1 is not real history, and it's written in the same format as the rest of Genesis, then to be consistent, the rest of Genesis is not real history also. And folks, if the entire book of Genesis is not history, we don't have a Bible. See, there's a lack of consistency here. They take Genesis 1 and turn it into a poetic form, and then all of a sudden change the rules when we get to Genesis 2. If they're going to look for poetic form in Genesis 1, they need to look for it throughout the rest of Genesis and the rest of Scripture. But they don't do that. They just don't like what God said in Genesis 1. Let's turn now to the second big part of the framework hypothesis. Instead of six sequential days of creation, they talk about two triads of days. As the framework supporters claim that the two triads of days is a topical parallelism where the topics of days one through three are parallel with those of days four through six. Well, let's see what they say about this creation. Two triads of days. Here's a chart on the framework hypothesis. And the first triad deals with the formation of the world, and the second triad deals with filling of the world. So on day one, God created darkness and light. On day four, which parallels day one, so it's not really a separate day, he creates the heavenly light bearers. On day two, he creates the heavens and the water. And day five parallels that with putting the birds and the sea creatures in there. On day three, we have the seas and land vegetation, which parallels day six, where he puts the land animals, the man, and provision for food. Now, at first glance, this looks pretty good. But there are serious problems with this order they put in there. So we're going to apply 2 Timothy 2.15. We're going to study and rightly handle God's word here. So let's look at these serious problems with the framework hypothesis. The Bible clearly teaches that water was created on day one and not day two. So the framework hypothesis is changing God's order right there. On day four, when I read the Bible, God created the sun, moon, and stars. But the framework hypothesis put that parallel to day one. Here's the problem. There's no space to put them because the framework hypothesis has space, the heavens, being created on day two. Again, they have the order different than what God gave us. Then in the Bible, God specifically prepared a place for the fish called the seas, not just water. But the framework does not have seas until after the creation of fish. See, the framework hypothesis is changing God's order of creation. 
Then we can turn to Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 through 11. Now, in this, these verses, we are in the Ten Commandments, and here's what God writes down. Now, remember, God wrote these down on the clay tapas, and here's what he wrote. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. What is God telling us? He's telling us this. I worked six days and rested one, and so you should work six days and rest one. He's comparing his creation week with our work week. This wouldn't make any sense with the framework hypothesis. They're saying these are not sequential. They're not really six days. They overlap. They're parallel to each other. In other words, we can now throw out this whole verse in the Ten Commandments because it doesn't agree with what the framework hypothesis teaches. Then let's go to Exodus 31, verses 15 and 17, where it states, Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Here again, God compares his six days of work and one day of rest to our work week. Again, this would make no sense if, if the days are not consecutive days in Genesis chapter 1. So the framework hypothesis is just simply not consistent here. Now, if the Bible states something, it's important. But if it states it more than once, it's very important. And we need to remember 2 Timothy 3.16, which teaches, All Scripture is God-breathed. Scientists didn't write this, folks. This all comes from God. Now, three times in the Bible, it clearly states that God created everything in six days. Not just once, but three times it tells us God created everything in six literal days. And we read that in Genesis chapter 1, in Exodus 20 verse 11, and in Exodus 31 verse 17. It says these are six literal days, not paralleling each other. So let's look at that word day now. Whenever the word day is used with an ordinal number or with evening and morning, it always means a literal day. In addition, there are at least 11 biblical evidences the days of creation were literal days and not figurative as used in the framework hypothesis. Let's quickly go through those 11 evidences that we had in some previous chapter lessons here. Number one, God explicitly chose the word day. Number two, a day is defined in Genesis 1-5 as a 24-hour day. Three, every time we have day with a number, it always means a day. Fourth, evening and morning always means a literal day. In Genesis 1.14, God compared a day with a season and a year, implying a season and a year longer than a day. Six, Exodus 20, verse 11, the Ten Commandments God wrote down. He created everything in six days. Seven, the genealogies in Genesis 5 show that this earth is not that old. Eight, in Mark 10, verse 6, the words of Jesus Christ where he said he created male and female from the beginning of creation. Number nine, the gospel the Bible clearly teaches there was no death before sin, but the framework hypothesis allows for death and disease before sin. Number 10, Genesis 1.31, God called his creation very good. If we add millions of years in there, he just called death, disease, and struggle very good. And finally, number 11, how old was Adam? See, Adam died when he was 930 years old. 
And if these days are long periods of time, and a year is longer than a day, then how old was Adam when he died? According to framework hypothesis, he might be millions and hundreds of millions of years old. That doesn't match reality at all. So when we look at the consistency test, the framework hypothesis fails the consistency test. So we can stamp this one with a great big failed. Now let's go to our fourth test, the empirical science test. In other words, we only deal with observable and repeatable science. Two questions. Can scientists prove the age of the Earth to be millions or billions of years old? And secondly, do the radiometric dating methods give an exact age? A lot of people are under the impression that these dating methods are reliable, and therefore Genesis 1 cannot mean what it literally states. So we have to invent some new method like the age theory, the gap theory, the framework hypothesis. The question I have here, does God not know how to communicate what he wants us to understand? Jonathan Sarfati, he's got his doctorate in physical chemistry, states this about the radiometric dating methods. Age isn't really measured. Rather, certain processes and amounts of materials are measured, and age is inferred via certain assumptions. Notice that word there? Assumptions. All these radiometric dating methods are based on unprovable assumptions, and none of them give an age. See, that's not taught in our schools. None of them give an age. They give a ratio of elements, then based on our starting point, our worldview, we interpret an age. Let's go to Peter Weinstein. He's got his PhD in geophysics. Makes this statement. The empirical knowledge, what is actually measured, is the ratio of isotopes. The age is a questionable interpretation based on untestable, what's that word? Assumptions. Vernon Cups got his PhD in nuclear physics, states, of the eight assumptions, there's that word again, assumptions, of the eight assumptions, none can be considered to rigorously hold in all situations. Therefore, dating by this method is at best a hypothesis concerning the age of any rock sweep or mineral. It is certainly not a scientific fact. Jim Mason has his PhD in experimental nuclear physics, states, the fact that the radiometric ages for rocks of known ages turn out to be so seriously inaccurate is a strong suggestion that one or more of these assumptions is incorrect. Hear what he just said? When we know when a rock was formed, we never get the right age. So if we never get the right age when we know when a rock was formed, why we would we trust any other ages? All this is not being taught in our education system. What they're being taught is not science. It's evolutionism. John Ashton, PhD in epistemology. What is that? The study of knowledge. And he states, If rocks known to be less than 100 years old date as being hundreds of millions of years old and billions of years old, how can we really know the age of any rocks from radiometric dating results? The problem here, folks, is many of our church leaders today are banning the plain reading of Scripture and putting in its place scientific assumptions based on a non-biblical worldview. We're not talking about scientific facts here. We're not even talking about theories. What we're talking about is assumptions. People are making scientific assumptions more important than the plain reading of God's Word. The framework hypothesis fails the empirical science test. Radiometric dating, folks, is not empirical science. It's based on assumptions. Gary Gilly, senior pastor, biblical discernment today, if not at an all-time low, is surely bumping along at the bottom of the pond. In other words, 
we're lacking discernment in our churches. We're lacking discernment in our Christian institutions. How has this affected our youth? Andy Huber, associate pastor and former youth pastor, makes this statement. Biblical discernment in youth ministry is at an all-time low. The current generation of young people are being inundated day in and day out with a worldview that is contrary to that of the Scriptures. Many are even being taught in Christian schools and in churches a worldview that is not a biblical worldview. How does this affect our youth? It's called the slippery slope. Many have doubts about the Bible because they are not getting real biblical answers. In other words, they're not getting sound doctrine. What many are being told is that it does not matter what you believe about creation. In other words, they're being taught inconsistencies. You can believe this, but you don't have to believe that. If the first chapter of Genesis is not real history, then maybe the Genesis flood was not a worldwide flood. We need a new way to interpret the Genesis flood. And maybe, just maybe, evolution starts to look truer to our youth. And they begin to question other miracles in the Bible as they're being bombarded day in and day out with evolutionism teaching. And as a result of all this, not teaching sound doctrine and trusting God's word for what it says, over 60% of our youth are leaving the church today. Church leaders and professors are being influenced by their understanding of science and becoming part of what we call the herd mentality, which teaches the earth must be billions of years old rather than implementing 2 Timothy 2.15, which states, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Then we can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, which is an exact description of what is happening in many of our churches and Christian education institutions today, where it states, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That is a very good description of what is happening today in Christianity. So now we finished and let's go to our lesson review. The framework hypothesis. We also covered the Berean plus test to see if the framework hypothesis is biblical or not. Question number one in our review exercise. State a characteristic of Hebrew poetry. A common literary feature of Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament is called parallelism, in which the words of two or more lines of text are directly related in some way. Question two. State three common characteristics of theistic evolution. Now, there are many. We're just going to go through a few. Number one, the belief in millions of years. Two, they elevate science as their standard over Scripture. Three, the misuse of language in Scripture to support a new idea. And all support death before sin. Question three. State why the framework hypothesis fails as a valid interpretation of Scripture. One, Genesis 1 is written in historical narrative and not poetry. Two, the two triads of days do not match the order of creation in the Bible. And fourth, give three Bible references that state God created everything in six little days. We had Genesis chapter 1. Exodus, 
chapter 20, verse 11, Exodus chapter 31, verse 17. And we've ended lesson four. We have one more lesson in this subject, and that will cover the Genesis chapter two, verse four challenge, and how could Adam name all the animals in one day? 